If you don't know me, my name is Paul. I, I grew up in the northeast of Brazil. So this was just around the corner from my house. This is just outside our neighbor's house. As you can see, it's quite dry. A few animals, goats and cows. Anybody know what the big tall tree that looks like a lollipop is? Anyone? Anyone? One person this morning. Oh, my sister knows. It's um, Carnauba. That's the name of that tree. And if you polished your shoes today, you may have used wax from the Carnauba tree, because that's in a lot of shoe polishes. Um, it's also, you know, in like Skittles, you know, the shiny bit on the outside of Skittles, that's Carnauba wax as well, if you look on the ingredients. There you go. You're welcome. That was all, <laughs> that was all I had to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is, this is our neighbor, Batinha, and he's on his way to get water. That thing on the back of his cart's made out of lorry tires. So he's picking up water for the household because um, there was piped water, but it wasn't always very reliable. Uh, so he's going with the horse. So that water will be for him and the family and for washing clothes and for cooking and for the horse to drink. Um, just some of you have been praying for the church in that part of northeast Brazil since the late 80s. And I just wanted to give a really quick update. Basically, the church has gone through a number of very hard years, but recently God's been doing something new. Um, I don't understand how God works, but recently just things have started growing again really fast. People that were part of the church have come back. People that weren't walking with Jesus have decided they want to. People who were alcoholics for years have started stopped drinking and been involved with church. Um, this was the church's 19th birthday, which they held outside the church building. About 200 people were there. Um, this is Edilson and his family who leads the church. So if you've been praying for the church in Trapiat. Edilson just wanted to say thank you for your prayers and that God's doing something. There's still a lot of challenges, but God is doing something new. And um, this is a bit of a church plant. There's a place called Nova Trapia, near Trapia, where the church had tried to start something new several times and it had failed. Um, but recently there's been a new attempt at a church plant and they've done up a building and the community's really got behind it. Um, and so it's an exciting time for the church there. So thank you if you've prayed. Um, this next picture I'm going to put on the screen comes with a health warning. There's a couple of screams this morning when I put it up. So if you're afraid of certain kinds of wild animals, that's your warning. As a kid growing up in the northeast of Brazil, um, I joked this morning, my mom and dad, there were a number of things that my mom and dad drummed into us as kids. And I was joking this morning, that was kind of my parents' parenting style, was drumming things into us. There's a lot of drumming. Um, and one of the things that was drummed into us with very good reason was this. I'm about to change the slides. Here you go. What do you do if you're a small child and you're playing and you come across something like this? This is a jararaca, quite aggressive, poisonous snake. Um, so what do you do if you're a small child and one of these comes across your path? <laughs> the answer was you keep your eyes on where it is and you shout really loudly for someone to come and kill it. Sorry if killing snakes is a sensitive issue for you if you don't like the idea of killing animals. To us as kids, it was totally normal. Um, and then when we reached a certain age, we were able to kill them ourselves. Um, but it was really important to know what to do when you saw a snake. Uh, my nan, some of you remember Granny Jean, Jean Cooper, who was part of this church for many years. She came out to visit us, and um, because we didn't have much water, the toilet that we had was outside. It was a pit toilet. So you go outside the house, and there was a pit and with a seat on it, and that's where you do your business, and there was a little kind of house that you'd be inside. Anyway, my gran, who's from Erdington, um, came to visit, and she was outside doing her business, and uh, something came under the door, and she thought, oh, it's a lizard. And then the lizard, she thought, this lizard's got a very long neck. And it <laughs> turns out the legs never came. It was just, it carried on coming in, this snake. And so what she had to do was stop what she was doing and stand up on the toilet seat and shout for help. Um, but I think she was, she was more embarrassed than frightened. Um, I've been working my way through the book of Genesis. So the way I, I was taught to preach, the way Donald taught me to preach and my parents was when you're speaking, don't just pick parts of a book at random, but work your way through a whole book of the Bible. Um, so when I finished Philippians, some of you remember I preached on Philippians for about a decade. Um, when I finished that, I asked Donald what I should preach on. Donald said, why don't you start at the beginning? So I've been speaking my way through Genesis, and we've come up to chapter 3. We're about to hear Genesis chapter 3. 
Um, bit of context, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and what's come before in chapters one and two is God has made the world and the universe, and he's made it well, and it's beautiful and good, and he's made all the animals, all the livestock, all of nature, God's made it, and it's good, and he's made a man and a woman to be kind of in charge, to have dominion, to look after all that God's made. And he's given them a very specific command, which was there's a tree. So God put the man and woman in a garden, the Garden of Eden, which is my new niece's name, I'm Uncle Paul. Um, the Garden of Eden. Uh, and in the middle of the garden, there was a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you may eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden, but don't eat from that tree. That was a, a command that God had given the man and the woman. So that's the context. My friend James, where's he gone? There he is. My friend James is going to come up and read. This is the whole of Genesis chapter 3. So buckle your seatbelts. Um, I find it helpful as someone's reading from Scripture. I find it helpful just to quieten myself and say to God, God, would you open up my mind and soften my heart to hear what you'd say to me through your word? So James is going to read Genesis chapter 3 for us. Oh, sorry. Sorry, James. <laughs> so, yeah, Genesis chapter 3. Um, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Thank you, James. I forgot to mention that if you have any questions, that's the number. You can text in and we'll do the question answer with Donald afterwards.
Shall we just pray? Father, thank you that you're present here, and thank you for your word. Would you come now, Lord, and would you speak to us what you want to say? And would you help us to see Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. So there's a lot going on in this passage. There's loads going on. Um, it raises all kinds of questions. It explains how we come to live in a world that's so beautiful, but so broken at the same time. And it also raises some big questions, like why did God allow for this possibility? Why did God make the tree? Why did God make the fruit? Why did God create suffering? Why did God allow for the possibility of the fall? Why did God create the snake? And um, all of those questions are very important questions and good questions to ask. Uh, I actually addressed some of them in the last talk I did on Genesis 2. You can find that on YouTube, on the church's YouTube channel. There's a, a video, it's called Genesis 2 Riddles, talking about why did God create the possibility for the fall? Why did he create the tree? Um, but when we were kids in Brazil, if you came to visit us, and a lot of people from this church did come to visit us, and suddenly you're walking along and suddenly you saw a snake next to your feet, your immediate question wouldn't be, I wonder why this snake has come into existence. I'll tell you, the immediate question you ask when a snake's by your feet is, how do I not get bitten, and how does some, everybody else not get bitten, and how do we avoid this dangerous situation? That's the important question to ask straight away, right? And again, when we were kids, if you came to visit us, and I was quite a cheeky little boy, if you told me, I'm not entirely sure I believe in snakes, I would probably have said something to you like, I'm not entirely sure, you're right in the head. <laughs> but today, a lot of people don't really think about or perhaps don't really believe in the snake or the devil. So this early picture in Genesis is of the snake is of the devil. But the Bible, actually, does anybody recognize this man? Anyone? Keith Green, that's right. Keith Green is a singer-songwriter from a previous generation. My mom and dad used to play his tapes at home. And I remember he had this one song that always stuck with me. It was called, No One Believes in Me Anymore. And it was Keith Green, and he was singing as if he was the devil. It's worth looking up the song. It's a good tune if you're, if you're into your kind of 80s piano music. Um, but in the song, the devil's saying, my job just keeps getting easier and easier since no one believes in me anymore. I can basically get away and do what I want because nobody believes in me anymore. But the Bible is really consistent in the way that it talks about the snake or the devil, as in he's present all through the narrative of Scripture. He's there at the beginning in Genesis. He's there in, through the Old Testament. He's there in the Gospels. And the letters later in the New Testament talk about him as well. This is right at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. It says, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So today I thought the important thing, as I was preparing for today, I thought the important thing is to focus. The big picture questions are really important, but for today it's important to focus on the practical questions around what do you do when you come across the snake. So what I've done is I've called this talk, Don't Talk to the Snake, and very simply, I'm going to ask three questions from Genesis chapter 3. Number one, what does talking to the snake look like? Number two, why does it matter? And number three, what do we do if we've been bitten? Okay, so let's go straight in. Question number one, what does talking to the snake look like? What do I mean by that? In the passage that James just read for us, did you notice, did anybody notice where... Eve is? Anybody? She's in the garden, but did you notice where she is? This is verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate. In other words, out of the whole garden, when this conversation with the snake started, Eve was close enough to the tree to see it and to reach out and pick some fruit from it. Okay? 
Out of the whole garden, that's where she was. Did anybody notice where Adam was? Anybody? I can't hear you. With her. That's right. This is the same verse. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the man and the woman, at the start of this, are next to the tree. Out of everywhere in the garden, they're near the tree when the snake turns up. There's already, I think, a lot to learn there, just from that fact. Where we put ourselves, what we're near to, is really important. When I was a kid, I would never, in Brazil, I would never run through long grass. If you couldn't see what was on the ground, I would never run through long grass. If you were going to turn over a big rock when I was a kid, I don't, we used to do a lot of that, I don't know why really, but if you're going to turn over a big rock or go under a pile of bricks, you would always do it extremely carefully and being alert to what might be underneath. The reason you didn't run in long grass, the reason you're careful is because your chances of meeting something that might bite you are higher in those kind of environments. My question is, what does that look like for us? Where are we putting ourselves? Where would we be wiser to avoid? What situations or objects or people or parts of the internet are more likely to put us in a bad situation? But talking to the snake, what does talking to the snake look like? Talking to the snake isn't just about where we put ourselves. Because being near the tree wasn't in itself what went wrong for Adam and Eve. What was it that attracted Eve? What did she most want in that moment? What did she love the most? Going back to verse 6. Verse 6 is a really important verse in this chapter. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So in that moment, Eve isn't most attracted by obeying and loving God. What do I mean by that? I was listening to someone else talk on this same passage, um, and they gave an insight which I thought was brilliant. So they, they, were looking at, they were comparing what was going through Eve's head with these verses from 1 John. This is from the King James Version. It words it really well. So it says this in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then this is the key bit. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what does that mean? What's going on there? If you look at it, Eve looked at the tree and she saw that it was good for food. And this person was saying, that's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh are the things that inside myself, I, I crave that thing. I want that feeling. I want that experience. So Eve looked at the tree and she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. So that's the lust of the eyes. Those things that we just want to look at more and more. The things that we crave. We just, just want to have another look. Just want to look at it a bit longer. It makes me feel so good when I see it. And then finally, the pride of life. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Eve wasn't satisfied with the wisdom and knowledge that God had already given her. She wanted to know what it was that could be learnt from eating of this fruit. It's the pride of life. Those three things. So where we put ourselves really matters and affects us. But more importantly, what we love, what attracts us, what most excites us, that's the really big deal. And it's important because the devil wants to make us believe that loving things which aren't God will make our life complete. I don't know what that looks like for you. What does that look like for you? What are you being tempted to love? Where are you being tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? 
if I could just own that thing, if I could just have that thing inside my house, if I could just have that experience, if I could just feel that feeling, if I could just have that feeling one more time, if only people would think of me as being wise, successful, wealthy, then, then I'll feel full, then I'll be complete. So that's what talking to the snake looks like. It's where we put ourselves, but it's also what we love. And that leads us to the second question. This is a shorter question. Why does it matter? What's wrong with talking to the snake? What's the problem with it? Where I grew up, if a snake bit you, and it was a poisonous snake, you would have to find somebody that had a vehicle that worked, which was hard to begin with. You would then have to persuade them to take you 40 minutes to the nearest hospital. They would have to take time out of working, which in a, farming, a poor farming community is a significant investment. So they would have to take time out of working, take you all the way to the hospital. You would then be sick for quite a long time, so somebody would have to take time out to look after you. So you would be unwell, but you'd also affect the people around you with your sickness. And Eve being tempted and falling affected her, but it also affected Adam, who for some reason decided not to say anything and just go along with what Eve was doing. And then that, in turn, Adam's sin affected all of us. It says this in Romans chapter 5. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. What does that look like in real life? For me, there are times in my walk with Jesus where I feel like God's saying to me, Paul, I want you to give this amount of money to this person or to this thing. Now, there's a problem there, which is that I have a real enjoyment and preference for my money being inside my bank account. I know you guys probably aren't like that, but I just really like the feeling of my, all of my money being inside my bank account and staying there. I really like that. And so when God says, Paul, I want you to give your money to so-and-so, some of it, my normal response straight away is, I'm just imagining it. God doesn't really talk to me like that. Nah, God wants me to be wise with my money and save it. That's what God will want me to do, be sensible. He doesn't really, he's like, they're all right, look at them, they'll be fine. That's kind of the conversation that goes on my head. And then God will say, well, actually, Paul, no, it, it is me. I am here and I do want you to give that money to this person. And I'll be like, oh. Do you know the feeling I'm talking about? Maybe you don't, maybe it's just me. Uh, well, yeah, okay, God, I'll think about it tomorrow. Can we just maybe talk a bit later on? I'm just... And so what happens inside me is I stop wanting to have a conversation with God because I know that what God's going to bring up is the issue of giving my money away. And so what I do is I, I kind of stop talking with God and I'm not feeling right inside because I'm not talking with God and because I know he's going to bring up the money thing and so I'm kind of shutting myself off. And what then happens is the people around me in my life, my family, my friends, because I'm self-involved thinking about this conversation with God and wanting to avoid what God's saying to me, I'm then nowhere near as aware of what's going on in their lives. And I might be grumpy. I, I, I know it's hard to believe, but I do have a tendency to be quite grumpy. Um, and I won't be as alert to the problems in other people's lives because I don't want to give this money to whoever it is. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll give you another example. Jesus says very specific things about the way that you look at women or the way that you look at people who you might be physically attracted to. He says, don't look at people with lust in your heart. And so as I'm walking down the street, if I'm tempted to look at somebody in a way that I know doesn't honor Jesus and doesn't honor them, even if it's just for the shortest moment, even if it's just the smallest thought that I entertain in my mind, if I go there, I, it changes how I feel inside. I feel dirty. 
I feel guilty, I feel distant from God, I, I know that I've done something wrong. And that then affects the way that I interact with whoever I'm going to see that day. Just this, and, and you wouldn't even know it, just the smallest glance in secret inside my heart then affects the way that I am at home, it affects the way that I am with my friends, it affects how available I am for other people. Just that smallest moment, that smallest look. My mom, my mom always says, my mom says, she's, your sin always affects somebody else. However small it is, however secret it is, your sin always affects somebody else. What does that look like for you? How does loving the wrong things affect you? And then what consequences does that have on the people that you care about, on the people that you rub shoulders with? We've all seen it. We've all seen how disobeying God, how loving the wrong things wreaks havoc in the real world. You see it in broken families, don't you? Broken relationships, broken friendships, wars, extreme differences in wealth and poverty. It's serious. When you go against what God wants, there are real consequences for real people in the real world. However small your disobedience is, there are real consequences. So we've looked at, number one, what does talking to the snake look like? It looks like being in the wrong place and being attracted and loving the wrong things. Two, why does it matter? It matters because it affects your life and it affects the people around you. And I don't think any of us here is sitting here thinking, actually, Paul, I'm all right, I'm fine. None of this affects me. If you are thinking that, the Bible's very clear. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. If you're like me, you've been bitten by the snake many times. I've so often been deliberately in the wrong place. I so often will go after and get excited about loving the wrong things. And my mess has affected my life in big ways and in small ways, but it's also affected the people around me, my community. And so this final question, the final question we're coming to, becomes really important, which is this. What do we do if we've been bitten? I think the thing I found most interesting when I was studying this passage, getting ready for today, was asking the question, where is God during this? Where was God during that conversation? Where is God in this passage? Because for the first half, it seems as if he's absent. Where is God? The man and the woman talk with the snake. Where is God? What's happening? I think the thing is, when you put yourself in a place that isn't wise, when you spend time getting fascinated and obsessed by things that you shouldn't, when you let your heart go after things that aren't of God, God doesn't always step in and immediately do something. He gives you freedom and responsibility to decide for yourself. God's a gentleman. He respects your ability to choose. He lets you decide if you want to love him. And I think that's what's happening here in this passage. Of course, when Eve was talking with the snake, God knew what was happening. But the man and his wife were free to choose. God wasn't there standing over them. And it's the same for you. It's the same for me. God isn't absent. He's a gentleman. And then it's really interesting. What happens when Adam and Eve take the fruit and eat it and they fall? What's God's reaction then? How does God react? Does he destroy them? What does he do? In the cool of the day, God came walking towards them. God comes walking towards them. And what does he do then? He asks the first question. Do you know what the first question that God ever asks human beings is? It's quite a few people. Where are you? The first question God asks humanity, where are you? And that's the question that God's asking all of us who have been bitten, all of us who mess up. He asks you, where are you? If you're feeling distant from him, if you know that you're guilty, he's asking you today, where are you? And then like Adam, you've got a choice. Adam was hiding in the trees. 
embarrassed, ashamed? Do we stay hiding or do we answer God's question? Do we bring our mess to God despite being embarrassed or do we stay hidden in the trees? So where I grew up, if you were bitten by a snake, you would have to put yourself in a vulnerable position and ask other people for help. And the longer you left it, the more damage that poison's gonna do in your blood. And there are consequences. Like I said, there's consequences for what we do wrong. And God does put limits on the man and the woman. And death and pain and suffering are brought into the world. It's a serious thing. But is it just punishment? The end of this chapter that we looked at today, is it just punishment or is there maybe something else going on? I, um, a few weeks ago, went to visit someone's house with a friend of mine. And I don't know if you've ever been in a house like this. It was a flat. And do you know those places where there's so much stuff inside the building, so many things that have been accumulated that you have to kind of walk along a path that's been made in amongst the stuff. Do you know the kind of place I mean? Have you ever been in a house like that? And there's bookshelves that are piled with books and then the books carry on off the top of the bookshelf to the ceiling. Have you ever been in a building like that? The kitchen counters just covered in stuff. And as I left the place, my friend said to me, I'd love to let my wife loose in there just for a few hours. He said, my wife is a machine. Just give her a few hours in a place like that, maybe two or three hours, and it will be transformed. You wouldn't recognize the place. She's amazing at turning an absolute mess into something incredibly organized. He said, I'd love to, it was like, kind of like letting a dog off the leash. He said, I'd love to let my wife loose in there. <laughs> Why am I saying that? Verse 15. Oh, yeah, that's saying, God saying, where are you? This is verse 15 of the passage we just looked at. I'll, this is God speaking with the snake. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Is God just absent and then turns up and dishes out a load of punishments? The really interesting thing, why am I showing you this verse? The really interesting thing here is this is talking about Eve's offspring. And you'd think that would mean Eve's descendants. Sometimes it's translated as seed. And what's interesting is in the Hebrew, the word that's used for offspring isn't plural. It's not talking about loads of people. It's singular. It's talking about one person. So right from the beginning, God is talking about somebody that's going to be descended from Eve who is going to destroy the power of the serpent. One person an offspring. It's looking forward to something. Then verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So the man and his wife ate the fruit. They realized they were naked and they'd made for themselves loincloths of underpants out of fig leaves, which I don't imagine is the best material for underwear. You don't see it very much in TK Maxx, fig leaf loincloth. And so what does God do? How does God respond? He, I, he sees their shame at their own nakedness and he makes for them garments of skins. Now, if you're an animal rights activist, you might want to close your ears at this point, but what needs to happen for there to be skins available for somebody to make clothes for them? An animal has to die, right? And so what's happened is God has looked at them in their nakedness, in their shame, and an animal has had to die in order that they might have clothing to wear that God has made for them. What's that looking forward to? Who is it that had to die in order for our shame and our nakedness to be covered over? What's that pointing towards? Then this, I found this really interesting. I'd never seen this before in my life. The Lord God sends the man and the woman out of the garden. You need to get away out of here. And he places the cherubim with a flaming sword to bar the way into the garden. The cherubim. What does the cherubim mean? Later on, when the people of Israel are in the desert 
and they make a tent. God tells them to make a tent, which is the place where the people are going to meet with the holy God. But in the middle of the tent, where the Ark of the Covenant is, the most holy place where the holy God is, there's a veil, a curtain. And God tells them specifically how to make this veil or curtain. And the veil or curtain symbolizes that God is holy and he's in there and we are the sinful people and we're outside and we have to be careful and limited in the way that we approach God. Do you know what was God told them to embroider onto that curtain, onto that veil? It's in Exodus. Anyone? Cherubim. On the veil, on the curtain are embroidered cherubim. That symbol from the garden, the, the angel with a fiery sword. It's not a little angel on a Valentine's Day card. You're talking about a warrior angel with a fiery sword, the cherubim. When Solomon then builds the temple, God tells the people of Israel to build the temple. In the center of the temple, there's the Holy of Holies. And again, there's a veil and a curtain. And guess what's embroidered onto that veil? Cherubim. It's the symbol of God is holy. You can't come in. When Jesus then dies, there's a real point made. What is it that gets ripped in half when Jesus dies? The curtain. And what is the symbol that's on that curtain? It's the cherubim. It's the symbol. You can't come in. That gets ripped in half in Jesus. We'll go on. The lady, when she falls... God says, you will have great pain in what? Childbirth. What's the way that God chooses to enter into a broken world? It's through childbirth. The tree, which was the symbol of where we messed up. The tree where they took of the fruit and ate. The symbol of our failure. The place where we failed. Jesus turns the tree into the place where he has victory over our failure. The thorns, which are the symbol of the curse on the man. Cursed are you, and the ground will bring up thorns. Become the crown that Jesus wears as he defeats death, as he defeats sin. The fruit, which is the symbol of where we really got it wrong, the sign of our failure. Through Jesus in the church, what does fruit become? What does fruitfulness become? It's the things that we do to please God in our lives. This is the last one. Eve took of the fruit and ate it. She took it and ate it. Two verbs, take and eat. Adam took the fruit and ate of it. Jesus says, take and eat, all of you. This is my body broken for you. So Jesus turns the two verbs that were a sign of our failure, of our sin, and he turns them into the verbs of our salvation in communion. Take eat all of you. This is my body broken for you. So what do we do if we've been bitten? God's always saying, where are you? Don't hide anymore. Don't try to keep him away anymore. Call out to him. Say, I'm here, Lord, help me. What does that look like practically? I, I say it inside myself, Lord, I'm here. Please help me. I need your help. Sometimes you can say it out loud. And the reason why we can trust him is because God's like my friend's wife. He's a God who specializes at turning the mess we've made into something organized and beautiful. So just to finish before Donald comes and we, we do the Q&A, just go through these questions one last time. What does talking to the snake look like? It looks like being in a place that's not wise and loving things that aren't of God. Why does it matter? It matters because it damages us and it damages the community around us. Finally, what do we do if we've been bitten? It's very simple. Lord, I'm here. Help me. Great. Thank you, Paul. We've had a few questions. Um, they come into three similar places, so we'll just do those and then we'll respond together. Okay, so this thing about loving the world. Yeah. There's a couple of questions I'm going to try and put them together. What, can you explain what the world is that you, we're not meant to love? In, because we're meant to love people, 
We're meant to give thanks for creation. We were thinking in our live stream this morning, we're meant to use our hands to do, create good things. Mm. So what's the bad stuff? What's the good stuff? I'll ask part B in a second. Yeah, what is so the world that's so the, not good? The, world, the world's used in different ways, isn't it, in the Bible? So the probably most famous Bible verse, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that's, God loves the world. When he made the world, he said it was good. So in that sense, the world that God's made, the creation, and us, the people he's made, that's good and we should love the world in that sense. But it, what it's talking about there in that verse is, is a sinful and broken that is of the world and not of God. In other words, it's separate from the way that God's made it. That's how I've understood it. So in other, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, anything that leads us into those places is what I think it means by the world. So it's a kind of self-centered replacement of God with things that will make us happy without God. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that plays out in lots of ways. So like I was talking about the way that I look at women and what Jesus says about that. And um, Dave raised something really good this morning, which was that how does that play into the way that you'd look at your wife? Um, like, where do you draw that? What's the different? Do you understand what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you differentiate? Between, and there's, a, there's a, a looking at your wife, which is a healthy and good thing that's from God. And then there's a looking at women in a way that's worldly, that's dishonoring mm. and harmful. And um, when does a thirst for knowledge and wisdom become sinful? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? It is a good question. What do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've had longer to think about it because it came in about 10 minutes ago. Mm. I think that... Um, it is always good to thirst for, to seek truth and to seek knowledge and to seek wisdom. And to do that from God rather than to be better than God. So it is always good to, Lord, show me your ways. Teach me about your creation. Teach me about how to live your life. But not, how can I find a way to get round that command to love my neighbor? How can I get round that command to share and give and be generous, as you were talking about? Mm. So I think a thirst for knowledge and a thirst for... I think the key word is wisdom. Mm. Wisdom is from God. Knowledge without wisdom is just trying to replace God. It's the same idea as the world. Mm. It's when we make an, something that means, oh, we don't need God anymore. We've got this, mm. and that's the problem. Mm. Yeah, I think it's about for me the things. One of the things I struggle with a lot is is wanting to know what something feels like, wanting to know what an experience would be like. I think that plays into it. So Eve wanted to know what it would be like to eat the fruit. In a way, that's gaining knowledge, isn't it? Mm. Like at school, pretty much all my friends smoked cannabis regularly. Um, and I thought, as a teenager, I thought it would be quite interesting to know what that was like. Um, in the end, I asked my mum and dad and said, what do you reckon? Do you, do you reckon I could smoke cannabis to see what it was like? And they said, uh, well, if you're going to, we'll do it here at home. We'll get it here and we'll be there with you as you do it to make sure everything goes all right. And I said, no, nah, you're all right. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think there's something in that that's like, for me, it's like wanting to know what something would be like that I know that God said, that's not for you. Um, and I think that's what Eve went through and, and she wanted to know what it would feel like and like so often happens, she did it and it felt terrible. She, yeah. Okay, uh, second area. Um, again, I think you're going to take one and <laughs> see what you think of this question. Tricky question, but a heartfelt question. Is this story sexist? Is this story sexist? Um, probably. First of all, don't... 
have enough knowledge to speak on it with authority. Um, I think there are people that have studied this in great depth um, that would give a much more eloquent answer than me. Um, but from the little that I've studied, I would say it's not sexist, it's just a true picture of two people who choose to disobey God and how that brings brokenness into the world. Um, it's really important yeah. that the story is about two people. Yeah. It's about one who does nothing but knows what he should do. Yeah. And it's about another person who, as Paul says to Timothy, didn't know as much mm. and was deceived. Yeah. One is deceived, one is cowardly. Obedient and cowardly, yeah. That is a picture of humanity. And in the New Testament, Adam tends to get mentioned more than Eve. He's the one that's in real trouble so like in the room. I, I would argue that it's actually a story more of... Uh, it's more countercultural. It's more pro-men and women being in harmony mm. because of the way Adam is dealt with through the rest of the Bible. Mm. And it isn't, it, isn't, it isn't a story about Eve. It's yeah. a story about Adam and Eve. Yeah. And and as you pointed out, he's there. He's there. Yeah. And then if you look forward to Jesus, I think a lot of the, when the fall happens, that's where the brokenness in the relationship mm. comes from and the pain and the hurt and the division mm. and the fighting to be the one that's on top. And Jesus turns that round and, and I think the way that Jesus speaks to women and honors women is part of his journey towards undoing what, the harm that the curse, mm. the fall brought. Mm. Um, I'm gonna ask my last question and it might just tie back into that to finish off with. But the questions, again, two questions in the same area. We get second chances. Why couldn't Adam and Eve just say sorry and be forgiven? I think they were, in one sense. God came to them and spoke with them and clothed them. And he doesn't stop. You see, you'll see later in Genesis, he doesn't stop talking with them. He's still in relationship with them, provides for them, loves them tries to help them with parenting their sons. Mm. So there is a, he doesn't distance himself, but in this world, there are consequences when we... Why did they have to leave? Why did they have to leave? I don't understand, like I said earlier, I don't understand God and his sense of timing and the way that he does things. Like with the church in Trafiau, why did they have to go through years of hardship and difficulty? Because I mean, I, I, I would say that I think it's because once they have, there is the, once you've done something, it's always easy to do it a second time, mm. isn't it? Once yeah. the thought is there, it's there. Yeah. Once disobedience is there, mm. heaven is wrecked. Yeah. Because you can't have selfishness, you can't have hurt all the mess of this world in heaven. Mm. So he says you can't eat from the tree of life. Yeah, it says there in the passage, doesn't it? In, in case they ate of the tree of in life. In case, forever. because that would mean that disobedience and evil would last forever. Yeah. And, he can, and, and to protect us from evil lasting forever, mm. they have to leave. Yeah. And I think, and this may be a slightly odd idea, but I think that in heaven, where there where we've chosen to be obedient and there is no suffering, no more sorrow because we're no longer disobedient. Mm. There is no more new birth. We don't have children. Mm. So it, all, it is, it's felt to me that when God says to the woman, you'll have pain in childbirth, it's because there wasn't going, there didn't need to be childbirth. He was gonna create humanity and we were gonna live forever and we weren't gonna need new children. Mm. But because death has to come into the world, to bring grace into death, there has to be new birth. Mm. To bring new birth into the world, it's quite a small hole to get the child out of. Mm. And so he's saying, this is the consequence that pain has come in. Mm. But actually, it was to protect us. Mm. And then what you do brilliantly is go into why 
he, it's all about the redemption, the cherubim. I mean, I thought that was brilliant. And this is, it's all about the redemption. He wants to save heaven for us so that disobedience can't be allowed in. Mm. And at the end of Revelation, we eat from the tree of life. Yeah. And it's all completed because we've chosen never to disobey God again. Mm. And he gives us hearts that are able to. That's, that's my prayer is, is yeah. Lord, give me a heart that doesn't want the things that you don't want. I can't change that by myself. You've got a final story to tell us. Yeah. Yeah, so um, this was uh, my boss, Andy, who some of you know, Andy Coxby. I was, I was talking with him in the work van, and um, I asked him, Andy, what do you think is the most important thing to take away from Genesis chapter 3? And uh, I don't know that he knew I was sat behind him with a notepad while he was driving the van, and he said... For him, it's learning to spot what's a truth and what's a lie. And he said, the world's full of people believing lies. And he said, you only have to be a couple of degrees off on the compass. And that then informs your thoughts and your decisions. And he said this, I thought this was really good. He said, you've only got to start thinking, I'm not even sure if God loves me. And your whole life can take a different course. And then this is a bit kind of how Andy talks sometimes. He said, a good gospel question for us to ask ourselves is, and I've got it up here, what lies are you believing right now? He said, that's a good gospel question for us to ask ourselves. So I thought what we could do is if we stand together um, and we just had a moment of silence, um, I'm going to pray. And then if we have a moment of silence, and I hand over to Sheila. I'll pray, I'll pray at the end of the silence. But just to ask ourselves that, and it might be that it's not this question, it might be just, Holy Spirit, what is it that you're asking me tonight? What is it that you're putting on my heart? What is it you want me to take away from this? So let's pray together, and then we'll just have a moment of silence. Jesus, thank you that you are here and you love each person here intimately. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now into our questions, into our hurting, into our doubts, into our hard hearts. And would you speak to us in the silence? So, Father God, we are here in front of you and ask you that anything that's not of you, that's from the enemy, that's in our heart and our mind tonight, would you take that away? And anything that is of you, that's from your word, any seed that you've planted, would you protect that and water that and let that grow? And in the coming weeks and months and years and lifetimes, would we see good fruit appear that pleases you? Thank you that you never start a job and leave it unfinished. And thank you for Jesus. Amen.